Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on October 1st of 2020 under the headline, Ain't No Party Like a Shanghaiing Party, One Sailor's Story. Here we go. One fine day in October of 1891, a teenage boy named Aquila Ernest Clark left the farm in Scapoose where he'd been working and headed for Portland. He was going to see the sights and maybe show himself a good time for a few days. He wandered around the waterfront, taking drinks here and there and probably taking a hand in a card game or two. Then, when it was getting close to evening, he met a pleasant fellow who happened to mention that he was staying at the Sailor's Boarding House at 2nd and Gleason Streets. "'It's the best place to stay in Portland,' he said. Well, that sounded good. Aquila needed a place to stay for the night, so he went with his new friend to the boarding house. "'The place was rather dimly lighted,' Aquila told author Stuart Holbrook years later in a 1933 interview for the Portland Sunday Oregonian." A Scandinavian was playing an accordion in the big main room on the ground floor. Several old-time seamen, or at least I took them to be such, were sitting in chairs around the room smoking pipes that reeked to the skies and telling how these newfangled steamboats would never amount to much. It was good enough for Aquila. He checked in. The next morning, when Aquila went downstairs, he was met by a jovial man who introduced himself as Smith. Smith had gathered a group of six or eight other fellows who were obviously newcomers to the boarding house, and now he offered to buy them all breakfast. Over breakfast, Smith just happened to mention that the proprietor of the boarding house, a fellow named Larry Sullivan, was hosting a party that day. He has chartered a riverboat to make a trip to Astoria and back to Portland, Smith said. Maybe you fellows would like to go along? We fellows did want to go along, Aquila recalled. Smith had the young men wait outside the boarding house, and while they were there, the first of several one-horse cabs pulled up to drop off a dozen or two gorgeous and daringly dressed young women. They, too, were there for the party. Presently, the steamboat Eralda arrived at the dock, and everyone stepped aboard. Smith had seen to it that we all had a few snorts of hard liquor and also won each of the justly celebrated Peach Blow cocktail, which was the invention of H.C. Malcolm, manager of the Portland Hotel Bar, Aquila recalled. Mr. Sullivan had provided an orchestra of three pieces, violin, accordion, and guitar, and the girls grabbed us and we danced. Mr. Sullivan stayed very much in the background on the trip to Astoria, he added. He quietly saw to it that we all had everything we needed, but Mr. Smith was the life of the party, as they say nowadays. Along about 1 p.m., still an hour or two out of Astoria, the gong rang for lunch. It was a sumptuous feast. I have never had such food, either on salt or freshwater boats, Aquila said. There was steak if you wanted it, or there was pork, or you might order oysters, crabs, or fried salmon. Along with the midday dinner, they served rye whiskey, rum, and three kinds of wine. More drinking followed, and more dancing. Finally, the merry company arrived at Astoria, 
Just before they put into the harbor, Smith gathered the company around him and laid down some papers on the saloon table. We are going ashore in Astoria so all of you can see what the town looks like. Uh, we'll have an hour ashore, and then we'll go back to Portland. Uh, just to make sure all of you are aboard when we leave, uh, sign your name on this passenger list. Uh, then, when we are ready to go, we'll make sure that everyone is here. Eager to get ashore, everyone signed, and then off they went for the promised one-hour town painting spree. On shore, Smith squired the young fellows from pub to pub, standing round after round, and after an hour or so of this hosted bar-hopping, none of the boys were thinking very clearly. Perhaps that's why not a single one of them saw anything strange about Smith's suggestion that maybe they'd like to take a tour of a deep-water sailing ship before they returned to the Aralda. The blue-water ship chosen for this <clears throat> tour was the T.F. Oaks out of New York City, a full-rigged windjammer with a steel hull loaded with 21 tons of wheat bound for the French port of La Havre. We and the first boat came alongside the vessel and they let down a ladder for us, Aquila recalled. We climbed aboard and one of the mates welcomed us. I forgot to say, uh, Mr. Smith stayed in the rowboat. Maybe if they'd had a little less to drink, one of the boys might have noticed that fact in time to do something, but there wouldn't have been much they could have done at that point. If one of them had figured out what was afoot and dove overboard and swam ashore, a cop would have been waiting when he got there ready to escort him back to the ship at gunpoint. They uh, didn't know it yet, but Aquila and his colleagues were already sailors. They'd been sailors for over an hour. The passenger list that they had signed had actually been the T.F. Oaks ship's articles. They'd not only been signing in, they'd been signing up as well. And in the 1890s, sailors who skipped after signing on to a ship were hunted down and dragged back to work by law enforcement the same way runaway slaves had been in the Old South during the bad old antebellum days. It was a form of indentured servitude. But back to our story. The friendly ship's officer proceeded to give the men a tour of the T.F. Oaks, explaining how the steam-powered anchor winch worked, giving the names of each of the three masts, and babbling amiably about the differences between barks and barkentines, and how they were different from full-riggers like the T.F. Oaks, and he was prattling on about things like this when Aquila glanced over his shoulder and saw all the rowboats pulling for shore, leaving them behind on the ship. And that was about the time that four uniformed police officers stepped out of one of the cabins on the deck. Each of them had a forty-five caliber revolver in each hand. Eight guns covering ten men. They weren't taking any chances. Then another cabin door and out stepped the captain of the T.F. Oaks with the rest of the complement of ship's officers. Now, young men, you are sailors on the T.F. Oaks and you're going to La Havre, France the skipper told them. Just to make sure you are going, I'm going to sort of tie you together for a while. Of course, the lads protested. The skipper was ready for them. One look at the <clears throat> passenger register, which they had signed on the Eralda, which the skipper had in his pocket ready to show them, and the dullest among them surely knew their case was hopeless. They had been shanghaied. It had all been a big trap. The party, the boat ride, the drinks, the friendly ladies hired to entertain them, all a trap to get the ten of them to sign that register and thus launch themselves onto a new and unexpected maritime career. As a side note, the boarding house runner who handled them so smoothly, Mr. Smith, was very likely the notorious Portland underworld entrepreneur Joseph Bunko Kelly. 
Several years later, he and Larry Sullivan would have a very violent falling out, and in 1894, Sullivan railroaded him into prison on a trumped-up murder rap. But in 1891, Bunko was Sullivan's number one lieutenant, and a very smooth operator indeed. It's actually somewhat unlikely that Sullivan would have entrusted anyone else with a job of this magnitude. The captain spent some time giving his new sailors a pep talk before sending them below. He spoke glowingly about the glories of being a sailor before the mast, and opined that all young men should go to sea for a voyage or two before settling down in life, and that an able-bodied seaman was one of the finest and noblest of God's creatures. I never did understand why the skipper went to all this trouble telling us how fortunate we were to go to sea, and especially fortunate to go to sea on such a fine ship as the T.F. Oaks, Aquila remarked to Stuart Holbrook. He had us completely in his power, but here he was talking like a recruiting officer for the Navy. Maybe that was because talk was cheap. The fact was, it was very uncommon for a sailing ship to be desperate enough to accept ten total greenhorns. That's about two-thirds of its normal complement of sailors. And it hadn't gotten itself into such a predicament by being a good place to work. The T.F. Oaks had a reputation as a hell ship. The wise sailors, the ones who'd been around a while, took care not to be in the boarding house when ships like the T.F. Oaks were due to leave port. The captain who spoke so highly of life as a sailor was notorious, not for abusing sailors physically, although that was a thing. He left that to his first mate, a scowling bully known as Black Johnson, but for not feeding them adequately. Sailors would put up with a lot of physical abuse, but constant gnawing hunger was something rather different. Chances are Sullivan's party helped the skipper out of a very tight fix, and he certainly must have been paid handsomely for it. And so did Aquila and his nine companions. After they had passed over the Columbia Bar, below decks, handcuffed to a stanchion, and crossed two oceans as A.B. mariners, they arrived at La Havre to find that Sullivan had claimed sixty dollars, two months' pay, from each of them, to cover the cost of his boat party. It would be seven years before Aquila Ernest Clark would see Oregon again. Key sources in this article have included works by Stuart Holbrook and Barney Blaylock. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatorgan.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficarra. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History episodes are uploaded every weekday morning at around 6 a.m., so it'll be a couple of days before you get your next fix. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the subsequent weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.